Hey, Tim. Hey, John. Hi. We have come to the end of a very long series on the chaos creature. Chaos dragon. The dragon. (laughs) Um, And we released the video. Mm -hmm. Yeah, real time, just a couple days ago. In real time, Mm -hmm. a couple days ago. So Mm -hmm. by the time this is out, it'll probably be a month or so. Mm -hmm. And we're really proud of it. Oh, man, it's so cool. Really, really cool. Stunning. Stunning. Our animation studio did themselves. Mm -hmm. Patrick Murphy's director Mm -hmm. just really wrestling with us how to like Mm -hmm. visualize all these things yeah Uh, we wrote a six minute script that turned into a three and a half minute script under kind of their direction yep which um i think it just feels really good it moves really fast Mm -hmm. gives you all the right ideas Mm -hmm. it does make you have to then go and do some of your own work yeah it raises so many questions that it does not you know, answer. So if you followed the podcast, it feels mm-hmm. like, wow, what a cool video. Yeah. If this is brand new to you, it's yeah. like, is this in the, really? I know. Is this the Bible, really? Dragons in the Bible? What are you? Yeah, totally. I've actually just anecdotally, as we've been going through the series, have had multiple people share with me, this is a brand new set of images and ideas. Yeah. They'd had no idea any of this was in their Bible. Wow. Yeah. Which is so awesome. <laughs> and it's fascinating because this is not a small theme in the Bible. Like, there are dragons in all the parts of the Bible. Mm, Yeah. So, anyway, it's been really fun. And it does generate a zillion questions that the video can't wrap up. And this podcast series has raised lots of questions that you have been sending in. So, we're just going to, you know, go for as as many as we can. Cool. So, should we just go for it? Let's do it. Okay. Uh, Let's start with a, a question from Tyler in Michigan. Hi, this is Tyler in Ann Arbor, Michigan. This series has led me to meditate on the role that deception plays in sin. I'm wondering what implications stem from humans being deceived into sin by the snake rather than choosing it independently. In Luke 23, Jesus seems to touch on this when he asks forgiveness for his killers while stating that they don't know what they are doing. How should the centrality of deception as a part of sin inform our view of both justice and how to live as Christians? Yeah, it's a great question. That's a really good question. Yes. We didn't talk about that much Mm -mm. that I can think of. Yeah, but I appreciate it because I have been becoming more aware of the importance of deceit, deception, in moments in the biblical story that are all patterned after each other, Hmm. uh, starting with the snake. It is super important that the first story of somebody doing anything wrong in the Bible is a morally innocent couple Mm. being deceived into doing the opposite of what God said. So they're culpable in that, like God said. They could have listened to God's voice. They could have, yeah. But they were deceived. They were deceived. By a crafty Mm -hmm. and a room serpent. That's right, yeah. And then that snake is connected to the chaos forces, connected to the waters and the the tani and the dragon in Genesis 1. And that theme of deception is huge in the Hebrew Bible people dealing untruthfully. It's a main theme in the Jacob stories. Yeah. Right from the beginning, it's a main theme of the Joseph stories. It's a big theme in the laws of the Torah. There's a lot about truth-telling connected to oaths and vows. And then you read on into the Hebrew Bible, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. There's all these stories of people tricking each other, deceiving each other. And they're all ways when humans don't behave honestly. Yeah. It's chaos. We introduce chaos. We were just recently reading a psalm where, mm. like, being 
kind of a, a righteous person, person living in right relationships. Mm. They're not accepting bribes on behalf of the innocent. Yeah. And they're not like talking bad about people. It's kind of like you can you can create a web of deception and yeah. like falsehood yeah. with your actions. Yeah. And that's like a tragedy. Yeah. So you're right. When Jesus forgives the soldiers crucifying him, they don't know what they're doing. That is very much a part of the Bible's portrait of the human condition. Sometimes our moral compass is so skewed, our desires are so misdirected and distorted that we will do bad. Thinking it's good. Thinking that it's good. Yeah. And so even that is a kind of self-deception. Like very rare is the person who does bad because it's bad. It's usually yeah, that's... because they actually find some kind of good in it, at least for them, even if it's a really distorted kind of good. Right. So there's a self-deception. I think that's what the Cain story is about. Mm. There's something crouching in his imagination that wants to right get at some good, at least for him even if it costs a life of Because the brother. good he wants is God's favor. Yeah, that's a good thing to want. It's not a bad thing to want. The deception is then, how does he get it? Yeah. And that deception is crouching Yeah. to have him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we did talk about how this helps me, I think, reframe a lot of times when I'm offended by someone mm. to remember, like, it's very often that they are trying to do the, the right thing in their mind. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a strategy that's harming me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But they're not doing it to harm me mm. necessarily. Yeah. Or at least I could see if there's actual, mm-hmm. what those intentions are. I don't have to assume yeah. kind of the yeah. evil, that we're all kind of living in our own web of deceptions that are influencing us mm-hmm. in, in ways. Yeah. It seems like this understanding of truth and deception of self-deception also really underlies Jesus's ethic in the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. I mean, uh, responding to enemies with prayer and blessing. Taking the speck out of your own eye before yes. fixing the other person. Yeah, non-violent, creative responses to evil instead mm. of just straight-up retaliation. That requires a kind of empathy to be able to try and see through even, you know, the eyes of people who are who have hurt you or are hurting you, to at least see, like, I can at least understand how someone could be so self-deceived to do what they're doing right now. Hmm. It's a kind of empathy. Yeah. And, yeah, this is a big part of the biblical author's portrait of human nature and how humans become agents and use the power of the chaos dragon, often because we're duped into thinking that that is the good way to go about trying to get something. Yeah. So it does, Tyler. I think I agree with you. And it's uh, kind of an implication of the chaos dragon theme. None of us really know when we're acting the dragon. Yeah. It both allows us to try to have more empathy for the other, Mm. but also be more introspective for yourself. Yes, yeah. It does both things. Way more self-critical. Which is the speck in the eye parable. Mm -hmm. That's right. Right? That's right. Exactly right. Cool. Yeah. Thank you, Tyler. Great question. Now let's hear a question from Rebecca in Iowa. Hello, I'm Rebecca from Indianola, Iowa. And as I have listened to the podcast about the chaos dragon, my mind can't help but go to the New Testament when Jesus calms a storm or when he invites Peter to walk on the water or when the scales fall from Paul's eyes. Wouldn't you say those stories are connected to the chaos dragon? 
Cool. You know, um, we do talk about Jesus walking on water. Yeah. This question probably came before that. The yeah. scales in the eyes. We yeah. didn't talk about that. Totally. So there were many people who sent in questions about the things that fall off of Paul's eyes oh. in Acts 9. So many that I was like, well, I got to make sure we talk about this. So you're right. In the podcast and the video. We mm. did, oh, what a cool scene in the video. Yeah, Jesus trampling on the, the waters. Chaos um, Leviathan waters. So definitely Jesus walking on water, inviting Peter out. So we did talk about that, but not the scales from the eyes. And to be honest, it never even occurred to me that that was related. Um, <laughs> well, so a lot of people occurred to them. It occurred to them. So awesome. Way to go. Yeah. Reading in community. Reading in community. So I did look it up, though, and here's what's super fascinating. Okay. So in Acts chapter 9, which begins with Saul, which is going by there is Hebrew name. His Roman or Greek name is Paul. Oh, so his name didn't change when he started following Jesus. It seems like he was known mainly as Saul in his previous life. It seems like he was known by both, but mainly as Paul in the Jesus movement. But he's called back and forth. Okay, It's not like his name changed. Anyway, after his vision of Jesus, he goes blind. Yeah. That's a key part of the story. And then um, he goes to this guy's house named Ananias, who gets up and prays for him. And then we're told that he regains his sight and is filled with God's spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight. It's a very strange little detail. Yeah. This word scales appears only here in the Greek New Testament. Oh. It's not a common word. Okay. However, this is so wonderful. This, this is like just genuine discovery. It's so <laughs> fun. So if you look up in the classical Greek-English lexicon of Liddell and Scott, so it's not just New Testament, it's all of classical Greek literature. So the word is lapis, emphasis on the second syllable, <laughs> lapis. Sounds French when you say it that way. Mm -hmm. So scale, it can refer to like the layer of an onion. Okay. That's in... Lucidides. It can refer to the scales of fish, mm. that's in Herodotus, and also of serpents, specifically in Aristotle and uh, Nicander. Hmm. It's used of okay, uh, yeah. snake scales. But also, just finish out the list of other things you can talk about if there's a, like a blacksmith who's hammering out copper mm -hmm. and there are little shards or pieces of copper flying off. That happens? I imagine I, it being so malleable, you wouldn't have a shard. I don't know. But that shard is a... Is a yeah, uh, Dioscor a Dioscorides of the first century uses this word, he calls it lapis calcuv, of flakes of copper okay. that fly off when a blacksmith is hammering it. Okay. <laughs> it can also refer to really thin sheet metal. Yeah, that makes that makes sense mm -hmm. why it would. Yeah. But anyway, it can be used of fish scales and of snake scales. Hmm. And then, so this is fascinating. So the word doesn't occur elsewhere in the Greek New Testament. It does, however, appear in the Greek Septuagint. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. The Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And where does that appear in particular? It appears in the kosher food list and specifically talking about Things that live in the water that have scales. Yeah. Sea and creatures. Leviathan 
would definitely <laughs> uh, qualify as that. So all that to bring us back to what are we supposed to imagine and what is the significance of something like scales coming off mm. of Saul's eyes? Mm. It's really fascinating. Because what the story is talking about is his own self-deceit or mm-hmm. his own... Yes, yeah, that's right. His preconceptions about who Jesus, yeah. the crucified one, was. And he was like... He was going at it like he was, mm-hmm. in a way, like weaponizing the snake mm-hmm. towards like let's using get these the, Christians. Yeah, that's right. Arrest, getting followers of Jesus arrested, uh, unfairly put on trial, and then subjected to really terrible fates. Yeah, um, and he was using violent coercion. Yeah. yeah, to try and stomp out the Jesus movement. He was being snaky. It's a pretty snaky move, and then. Something like, notice Luke qualifies it, something like scales fell from his eyes. So we're at least being invited (laughs) to see something, what do you say, an aquatic aquatic creature, something like a a reptilian or scaly water creature. He's shedding something. He's shedding something associated with aquatic monsters. That's really fascinating. So I haven't done... Other than looking things up in concordances and lexicons, I would be curious. I would want to survey now all my Acts commentaries and see if anybody has notes on that. If there's ever been any essays written, that would be the next step to see, like, have other people seen this? Hmm. Did people see this in the ancient ancient readers of Acts? That would be the next place to go. But anyway, Rebecca, thank you yeah. for bringing that to Sounds my, like many people. my attention. Yeah, a lot of people did. But Rebecca, you asked the question in the most succinct form. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So now you know how to get on the podcast. Be succinct. Uh, Yeah. So how cool is that? Snaky eyesight. You can see things in a snaky way Uh, and then then act accordingly. Yeah. That's terrifying. It's a really good image. Yeah. Take the scales away. I said good image. You said terrifying. Oh. (laughs) But yes, it's a good, terrifying image. It's a good, terrifying image. Yep. Okay, here's another question. Oh, yeah, this actually is also a question that was asked by many people. And we're going to hear Zeb ask it, who's from Tasmania. Hey, Tim and John. My name is Zeb, and I'm from Tasmania in Australia. You guys and the whole Bible Project team are amazing, and you're such a blessing. You briefly mentioned in episode 12, Rahab, and you linked the name and title to the sea monster image. I'm just tracing my mind to the book of Joshua and Rahab who lived in Jericho. Jericho means fragrant. Is there some sort of inverted link between Rahab's name and character portrayed against the city of Jericho and its name and character in the story? Rahab seems to be the only thing of fragrance in Jericho and the city itself is more like the chaotic sea dragon. Am I reading this right? What are your thoughts? Keep up the incredible work. Thanks. Thanks, Zeb. Okay, great. This is uh, one of those elements where I love that so many people, when they learned that Rahav was a name for the sea dragon, especially in the poetic books, the prophets and the Psalms, Uh but it's a uniquely Israelite name. Hmm. And then people think of the character, the biblical character, the prostitute. Rahab, who lived and rescued the spies in the city of Joshua. So first off, I love that people are seeing the connection because that's totally how hyperlinks work. It also is a good opportunity to say that learning some facility to learn how 
to use original language concordances or lexicons can be real helpful. Because in this case, even though the names are spelled the same in English, they are different in Hebrew. Mm. So Rahav the dragon is from Resh He Beit. Rahav, so it's spelled like it sounds in English, which is from a verb, Rahav, to, to like a raging storm. Okay. The, the raging one okay. is the dragon name. The Rahab in Jericho is a different word, mm. even though it's spelled the same in English. In English, okay. Yeah, it's Resh Chet Bet, so Rahav, which means to be broad or wide open. Wait, there's a, there's a soft H and a hard H? Mm-hmm, yeah. There's He, just like our H, and then there's Chet, uh, which is ch, ch. So that's the character. In English, we don't have that, so we're just like, yeah. just H is fine. Yeah, although our English translations could have put a K-H in there. That's true, the K-H. That's what you do. That's what I do Yeah, to represent Chet. Yeah. yeah. Ruach. There's, there is also C-H, which in English can sometimes. Yes. Like Johann uh, Sebastian Bach. Bach, yeah. But normally it means ch. Yes. And so if somebody doesn't know that and they say C-H in English, they'll yeah. say Johann Sebastian Bach. So I prefer the transliteration K-H for the letter Chet, in which case it would be Rachav. Okay. So it's a different word. Uh, it sounds familiar. What's the word I'm thinking of? Compassion? R- oh, Racham. Racham. Racham, yeah. yeah okay, mm-hmm. that has the K-H in it. Yep, that's right. So there's actually not a connection between Rahav, okay. the raging dragon, and Rahav, the character in Joshua chapter 2. Mm. But, you know, this is a lesson I, I learned back in graduate school. My, one of my main teachers, my advisor for my dissertation, Michael Fox, he was a scholar of, especially of the wisdom literature. He's written, written a lot of commentaries on those books. And he instilled in me the value that sometimes when you research, a negative conclusion is just as valuable as like a positive discovery. Meaning? Meaning, when you come to an idea, you ask a question. Yeah. Uh, research that leads you to a negative answer. Nope. I thought that that was a thing. You're still learning something. But now I know that's not a thing. It feels less exciting. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's not discovering. It's the absence. It feels like the absence of insight. Yeah, but both types of insight. And really, we were talking about dissertation topics once. Uh-huh. And I was telling them some ideas that I had. And so I, I don't even remember what it was. One idea was, I think, you know, people think this, and I, I would think that that's wrong. But a whole dissertation just to say that people think this, but it's wrong. Mm. And he was like, no, that's very valuable. Okay. That's just as valuable yeah. as like, here's something that nobody's thought before. Okay. And Well, uh, I think especially then if it's something that is a popular wrong thing to think. Oh, then it's like debunking. Then it's debunking. Yeah, Mythbusters. People like to do that. Yeah. I mean, you just did that with Paul's name earlier. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, and sometimes that that's helpful. Yeah. Anyway, so Zeb and all those who asked the question wondered about connection to... Yeah, you're on the quest. Rechab. You're using the skills. Yes. So what do I do? Okay, like I, I make oh, yeah. that connection. I'm reading it in English. Mm-hmm. What tool do I use? Yeah, so it depends on what tools you have. Uh, you could go to something like blueletterbible.org. That's a free one. Mm-hmm. And find one of their English versions... So I'm going to put in, I'm in Blue Letter Bible, mm-hmm. Joshua, what verse would I do? Oh, you could just do Joshua 2 verse 1. Okay. And if I click on tools, mm-hmm. then it gives me an interlinear, which means it's going to show me the Hebrew while it shows me the English. Yep, that's right. Then you'd scroll down. 
scroll down, and it's like every English word's on the left, the Hebrew's on the right. Yeah, her name's almost the, the last word. Yep. And then there's this, is that H7343, is that Strong's? Or? Yes, so Strong's Concordance, it's an old tool, but they've given every original language word a number. Mm-hmm. And then with the digital tool like this, you can then click on that. Here, here's the... um. Yeah. Here's the sound. Strong's H7343, Rahav, Rahav. There it is. There it is. And then you can see it in mm-hmm. Hebrew, which yep. is a little intimidating for yeah. us lay people. <laughs> but then you can click on the Strong's, and there it is. There's all, mm-hmm. this is a free Strong's concordance mm-hmm. online. Yep. That's what Blue Letter Bible offers is the digital Strong's concordance. But then a way to search for it and see everything. And mm-hmm. That's right. If you're in a digital Bible software, there's also ways you can. If you got Logos or something, mm-hmm. you mean? Yep, yeah. And you can look up just re- in a couple clicks all the other places where that occurs. So in this case, what you notice is, oh, those passages in Isaiah never are not connected at all to the name of this female character from Joshua chapter 2. So there you go. Way to go, John. You, you made this a, a real practical learning opportunity. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, next, let's hear a question from Wayne in Georgia. Hi, this is Wayne from Atlanta, Georgia. And my question is, is the chaos dragon evil because of what it is or is it evil because of what it does? Thank you. Mm -hmm. Great question. Yeah. What makes something evil versus raw? Yes. So the first Q&R episode that we did in the chaos dragon, most of the questions we pulled together were about this. Yeah. So that would be a place to go back. But we didn't quite hit the question in this way and this concise. So I thought it'd be good to tee it up again. Yeah. So yeah, one way to say is what does the word evil mean in the Bible? Another one would be to say is what does it mean to say that a creature is evil? Yeah. It is evil. (laughs) That is in its essence is evil. So here's the one first way to respond, there's probably multiple ways to respond. One is that in Genesis 1, which is where the dragon is first mentioned on day five, the yeah. tanin. It's good. Taninim. It is a part of what is called good yeah. for day five. You know, and as I thought about that more. It's the chaotic sea itself. It's the, you know. Yeah. And what God is doing is it's putting boundaries. Yes. So it seems like the boundary making is good. Yeah. But is also the sea now also in some way good? Yeah. What is called good is both the ordered realms mm-hmm. of sky, land, and sea, each with a boundary. That's good. Mm-hmm. But then day five is just about the filling yeah, of the, the waters in it. with the creatures. That's true. But doesn't the um, the tanin there mm-hmm. represent mm-hmm. also the chaotic sea? Mm-hmm. The creature represents the chaotic yeah, sea. Yeah, the chaotic sea represents non-creation, yes. disorder. And then the dragon there is using one of the dragon-taming strategies that the biblical authors have, which is to downgrade it from a cosmic deity that's rival to the creator god. Because if it's just just an image of the chaotic waters, that's clearly not good. The chaotic waters in and of itself needs ordering. Yeah, that's right. Which is why there's no good on day two. Okay. On day two, God separates the waters from the waters. Ah. Nothing is pronounced good. Okay. Because the waters are, they're not... They are no thing. They are non-order. And the dragon was the most famous ancient symbol of when the non-order of (laughs) disordered nothingness 
all of a sudden has some agency. And when that symbol has some agency, it's just another creature in yeah. God's good yeah. world. Yeah. So according to Genesis 1, no creature, animal or human, is in its essence evil. Mm. Uh, creation in its essence is an expression of the generous mind of God. And it doesn't mean it's always safe, mm. but it, nothing in creation is in its essence evil. Got it. According to Genesis 1. Yeah. So in that sense, the dragon as a symbol mm -hmm. of disorder is sort of like a neutral, right. morally neutral, the same way a bear or a lion is morally neutral. Yep. But when intelligent creatures, spiritual or human, use the power of the dragon yeah. on each other. Yeah, that's evil. Now, if by evil we mean there's a moral intent to destroy. Exactly, to undo good. To undo good. Undo yeah, yeah. good, because that's what evil is. It's the undoing of, of good uh, in biblical thought. But it's like a purposeful mm -hmm. undoing of good. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. So a simple answer, Wayne, to your question is anything in the Bible can be described as evil because of what it does, not because it, of what it is. So in biblical thought, any creature that does evil is actually violating its own essence, hmm. which is why it's a form of self self-destruction. It's interesting how when Job talks about the Leviathan, he's kind of like, just if I can remember it correctly. Mm. When God? God in the book of Job oh, or Job? Right. God in the book of Job. Both, both talk about it. Yeah. Oh, well, maybe it's when Job, I don't remember, but it's like, he's just kind of in awe of the creature and he's just like, mm. don't stand in its way. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's gonna, you're gonna get a thrashing. Yeah. Yeah, that's and, right. And the sense you get of it is like, not because it's evil, mm -hmm. it's because it's just strong mm -hmm. and it thrashes. Mm. And so if you get in its way, yeah. you're going to get beat down. Yeah. But he doesn't have the sense of like this moral no, of evil. No, moral evil. It's not. Yeah. yeah. So there, yeah, God is describing the dragon in its kind of classic sense in the ancient context mm. of uh, an agent of disorder. But when that symbol is applied to a spiritual being that uses violence and disorder yeah. to accomplish its purposes— yeah which is classically what the word the Satan means in Jewish thought. Now we're talking about something that's choosing moral evil. But again, not in its essence evil, because nothing, according to Genesis 1, is in its essence evil. Even the chaotic waters is not in its essence evil in Genesis right. 1, right? It's just, it's nothing. It's disorder, non-order. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard. We're entering another culture's way of viewing the world, which is why it's takes effort to wrap our minds around it. But there you go. Great. All right. We've got another question from Ulrika in England. Hi, Tim and John. My name is Ulrika and I'm from Luton in England. You've said that humans can become agents of chaos and that's easy to see with people we might consider evil, such as Nebuchadnezzar or Hitler. However, most people don't set out to cause chaos so often we become agents of chaos inadvertently or without intending to be. I'd love your thoughts on that. Thanks so much for what you do. Bye. Yeah, this is connected to the self-deception. Yes, back in the first. Motif that Tyler had us talk about. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Brought up. And yeah. Um, yeah, it's just a good reminder. Like, mm -hmm. it's so easy to point at the other mm -hmm. and see the chaos. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard to see it in yourself and with your people, mm -hmm. like your crew. Mm -hmm. It's like we can be really empathetic with 
our friends and family mm. to the point where we don't see the true like chaos that's being created mm. that we should be aware of. Yeah, you know, even one way of thinking about some of the most intractable, impossible conflicts in history or in our world mm. is usually between irreconcilable oh, yeah. differences of who thinks who is unleashing chaos. Right. You know? And so, I mean, just pick any of the conflicts raging in the world today. And yes, there are occasionally individuals who delight in doing evil, but even then, there's usually some aspect of some good thing, even if it's only good for them that yeah. they think they're pursuing. And then when you scale that communally, mm. right, it's very easy to yeah. see the destructive implications of another group's behavior. And that might make me then think, well, of course, if I'm against that, then like we're the good guys. And it blinds me to maybe destructive implications yeah. of my responses to that. Yeah. In which case, it's like two dragons battling each other. You know? It's probably <laughs> yeah. the most honest way to look at it. Yeah. You know, we've, I think we talked about Thanos before in some, <laughs> some conversation. But it seems like the best bad guys in cinema mm. are ones that actually don't think of themselves as the bad guy. They think of themselves as the hero of their own story. Oh, yes. Right. Right. And yeah. Thanos wanted to save the universe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He by like, destroying half of it. By destroying creatures. half of it. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And so you kind of like, he becomes this character where mm -hmm. he's such an interesting bad guy. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just find that mm -hmm. we can appreciate that in art mm -hmm. a lot more than appreciate it in ourselves. In ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's right. Yeah. I think the takeaway is probably in, in two directions. So thank you, Ulrika, for asking it because it both should invite critical reflection, like we were talking about earlier the speck in my eye before I look at the log in another person's eye. But then also really trying to see that log in the other person's eye. Like maybe, how could I try to imagine life through their eyes? Mm. And maybe there actually is something to it. And, you know, uh, what I see is a log, but maybe it's actually something more like a small twig. <laughs> uh, if I could really see what they're after. What's the good that they are after, but in a destructive way and what are the good things that I'm after through even unintentionally destructive ways so yeah I think it's a really valuable theme especially in the Chaos Dragon series because we had a question in the last Q&R episode about how this image is potentially dangerous yeah. if it can be used as a label right. like you're the dragon we're the dragon slayers Yeah. so it's good that we kill you you know and well Keep talking about Sermon on the Mount. Mm. Sermon on the Mount's on our brain. Yeah, that's right. Because next year, yeah. Sermon on the Mount. So I'm thinking about Jesus saying, do not murder. You've heard it said, do not mm. murder. Don't mm. call. I say to you, don't don't call your brother fool. Mm. Don't say you fool. Mm. It's like this label Yeah. of like when you label someone, mm. that's like you're on the road to destroying them. Mm. Mm. You know, some of the cruelest like leaders, mm. they will dehumanize people yeah. with these labels that then makes it feel okay to then do horrible things mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. So there is that danger of like yeah. when we point at someone else and say the dragon yeah. is we, over there. You reduce their reduce them. image of God complexity to... So Jesus says, hey, yeah. when you see the speck that you think's the dragon, like first mm -hmm. look inward 
mm-hmm. deal with your own dragon. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad we keep coming back to that. I think it's really important. Yeah, me too. Yeah, agreed. Interesting question from Tom in England. Hi, Tim and John. This is Tom from Bristol in England. I'm a big fan of your podcast. In John 13, we read of Satan himself entering Judas at the Last Supper before he goes out into the night to cause Jesus' arrest. This seems very connected to the theme of people becoming snakes and being participants of chaos. I wonder if this is the most ultimate or climactic way in which this can happen and what it therefore might really mean for Satan to have entered him. Many thanks for all you do. Hmm. Is it the most climactic mm-hmm. way in which this can happen? Yeah, yeah. Is this scene of Judas, mm. Satan entering Judas, Yeah. like is there like kind of this climactic moment here of showing what it looks like to become the chaos creature? Yeah, so let's, let's go back. Let's leave the Last Supper okay. for a moment and go back. So we had the, the snake in the garden where deception is a key theme. And it's, so the snake influences through a false, a distortion of reality and putting that in front of people's imaginations. Then the Cain story, even though it's implicit and we've had to meditate on it for years, there's something about him, an idea entering his mind that is called sin, that's like an animal that wants him. And then when he acts on that, he murders his brother in the field. Yeah. So we're being asked to see some kind of influence, like a beastly influence on his imagination. And so that's when we introduce that image of putting on the costume. Another way to say it is you incarnate, you become an embodiment, yeah. as it were, of the dragon. So the Cain story really kicks off that motif, and then you get Lamech, and then all these moments later in the story where people start doing horrible things to each other, we're meant to have like the Cain template, you know, kind of underlying all of that, which is why people can be called dragons. So what's interesting then, John uses two phrases, actually, all the way back in John chapter 13 when he describes, okay, so hold on. So Judas, Judas is the person who got Jesus arrested. So if Jesus is portrayed as the seed of the woman here to crush the head of the snake, but the snake gets a strike, right, Mm. at the heel of the snake crusher, Judas is that one. Like he he was... He lets the snake out of the cage. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Of sorts. Mm -hmm. I mean, he like lures the snake in. Yeah, so let's just pause and just say that he's a very significant figure in the story of Jesus. Okay. You have to imagine after that first generation in the Jesus movement, Judas fell real low on like the boy baby name list. <laughs> so I, I think it still isn't a, a famous, real popular one. popular one. It's the word Judah. You, yeah, and that one you you, you hear. You still use Judah, but yeah. not with the S on the end. And this he becomes an archetypal kind of bad guy. But let's get underneath okay, this. Okay, and here's okay. Hold on though. I never understood. Wouldn't they have known who Jesus was without Judas? Like. You take him out of the story, mm. they could have still mm. found Jesus. They could have still arrested Jesus. Mm. Like, he mm. is an important part of the story. Oh. But is he that critical to the, like, the logic chain of Jesus getting arrested? And- oh, I think so. Jesus was super secretive in that last week. He was retiring to secret places, secretly mm. arranged places. But when he was out in public, he was in the temple courts. And we're told there that they— And why didn't they just get him there? Ah, multiple times— in Mark, Luke, and Matthew, 
because he was so popular. If okay. they arrested him there in uh, public, uh, they didn't want to cause a riot. Okay, so there's political kind of motivations of how they wanted to arrest yeah, him. Yeah, so it had to be a low profile. Okay. And at the end of each day, Jesus would just slip out of the crowds, and then he was gone into, okay. into these. So at least that's how so the that's story the is presented. Judas. Okay. So Judas is the one who reveals his whereabouts okay. at night. Okay. Mm-hmm. But that's a great question. Yeah, I can see why okay. I could, can totally see why you'd think that. At least that's how, but that's how the gospel authors portray it. Okay. He's the the link. I just live in a time where it's like the government knows where I am at any point oh, with my sure. cell phone. That's I mean, true. it's like if that's they true. want to take me out, yeah. they can send a missile directly to me right it's now. Okay. It's not so it hard. Not, it's not, not like that. <laughs> it's not like that. I could yeah. slip away. It wasn't like that. I could be like James Bond and just slip away. <laughs> yeah. What do you say if it was a spy movie, uh, Judas is the mole? Uh-huh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. So as the gospel authors look back on that sequence of events, they're portraying Jesus as the snake crusher. Judas is the key person who delivers the Son of Man over into the hands of the beast. And so the gospels have different ways of describing how that happened. John chapter 13 begins saying, during the supper, the diabolos, or the translated the devil, but the slanderer, the accuser, so the accuser had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray him. Hmm. So there, that's kind of using the Cain model right there. Mm. It, this purpose in the heart. Yeah. What does Judas want here? Totally. Okay. So, actually, you want to know what Judas wants, and you want a great piece of historical fiction. There's a New Testament scholar, Adam Wynn, who wrote a really well-informed historical novel about the backstory of why Judas does what he does. Uh, It's called Killing a Messiah. I listened to it. Mm. It's wonderful. Really, and the goal is to get an empathetic understanding of why would somebody yeah. betray someone like Jesus, yeah. and why would the Caiaphas and the high priests? How would they have perceived Jesus, and why did they do what they did? Yeah, why would Pilate? Who is he? Uh-huh. Why did he do what he did? Okay, and they create a backstory that's all historically informed. Yeah, but what are, are they, the clues of Judas? Oh, well, one we know that um, he was, what do you say, filching money from their purse. John tells us that, mm. that they would so collect he was, he money. So he was breaking that already. Before. Yeah, he was kind of, <laughs> that's totally right. So we know that Jesus' kingdom of God message and movement and his acceptance of the word Messiah, that title, very sparingly, meant that Jesus knew he was walking a, a, on the knife's edge mm. with being perceived as yet another militant, Ah. like revolutionary, mm-hmm. who's going to overthrow the Roman occupation, unseat the high priesthood, you know, and like the Maccabees mm-hmm. did, you know, not long ago in Jesus' day. So that's the angle that Adam Wynn explores okay. in his representation of Judas. And that seems likely, because what would cause somebody to be attracted to a leader uh-huh. and then become disillusioned with them and then eventually sell them out? He becomes concerned that he's going to try to take power? No. In this case, it would be the opposite. It's when he begins to learn— Oh, that he's not going to do that. That he's not going to do that, and that he's actually going to die. Uh, he came to Jerusalem to die. 
And he thinks that's how he's going to save the world. Okay. And so I might as well get on the, the good side, the winning side. Yeah, that's right. So this guy's going to thinks he's going to die. He's not going to start a freedom movement, but all the people love him. And what the, the temple leaders were told, they see Jesus as a threat because all the people love him, but yet he's claiming that the way that Israel is partnering with Rome— It's going to lead to destruction. It's going to lead to destruction, and they think, well, this guy's going to start a riot, and this wouldn't be the first riot. This yeah. would be like the umpteenth riot in Jerusalem that brought Pilate to bring a heavy hand of death. Yeah, okay. He's and trying to keep the peace. They're trying to keep the peace. Yeah. And so Judas is like, I see where this is going. Mm -hmm. Jesus is going to get taken out. I, I should he thinks he's get on. To die. I should get on the side of the victors here. Yeah. So that I've got a place at the table. Essentially. Yeah. Well, yeah. So it could be a selfish motive, or there could also be like one thing Jerusalem doesn't need right now is another riot. Oh. Okay. And so he's trying to mm -hmm. like, hey, let, I'm going to deliver Jesus quietly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's just do this behind closed doors. Oh, interesting. And like keep the status quo. Mm -hmm. But. It's such a deceit in what's really going on, what Jesus really needs to do. It's, yeah. it's described in the Gospels as yeah. being tempted yeah. by the devil. What was it? The, the devil, devil put, put it in, in his heart. Put it into, into his heart. Yeah. Right? Because we know from Jesus' teachings, for him, it's actually leading Israel to see that it's only by letting go of some vision that we have of how Israel is supposed to exist in the world that this is a family called to give up everything mm. and surrender over to God, even if that means death, to open up the gates of Eden and eternal life mm. for the nations. And that, what Jesus believed was Israel's unique calling in the world, to suffer, to unleash the life of Eden to the nations and to not fear death. And Judas thought that that was, apparently thought that was an insane move that was only going to bring more trouble. So the devil put it into his heart. Hmm. Then later, at the end of John 13, when it actually happens, what we're told is that the Satan entered into Judas. So it uses a different phrase. The Satan entered into him. Hmm. So he has two ways of putting it. The devil, the slanderer, putting something into your heart, or the opposer entering into somebody. Hmm. But that's another way of thinking about Cain, Yeah, too. Yeah, the sin crouching at the door, it was like putting the thought in his mind, mm -hmm. I need to kill my brother. Mm -hmm. And then there's this like, devout, and then it's the monster devouring Cain is kind of this idea of the incarnating, yeah, like becoming one with. Yeah. yeah. It does feel like a two-step process in a way. Putting the idea in. Yeah, actually, and that's true. Anytime an idea enters our minds, we have the choice about yeah. whether to entertain it Meditate on it. Yeah. And that can generate all kinds of other stuff. Hmm. Or you can drive it out, stomp hmm. on it hmm. to like be done with that thought. Mm -hmm. I think that's something like what Paul mentions. There's that kind of well-known line he uses about taking every thought captive mm. for the Messiah. Mm. Yeah. In Second Corinthians. Ruling the thoughts. Yeah. Subduing thoughts. Yeah. So anyway, thank you, Tom. I do think it is a way that John is showing a climactic moment of Jesus versus the power of the snake that, as it were, takes over Judas. But I think it's important not to minimize Judas's own journey 
in his own agency and participation in the way of the snake. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always really wonderful. Man, we spent, I think we spent nearly half a year talking about the dragon. Yeah, I guess 20, almost 20 episodes, something. Yeah, yeah. that's half, that's almost half uh, a year. We started in mm. August, wow. the end of August. Okay. It's a worthy, worthy topic. <laughs> I, th- I think so. Thanks for hanging in there with us. Mm-hmm. And I hope I hope it was worth so many hours of conversation. <laughs> and if you think talking about one subject for six months <laughs> is a lot, <laughs> we'll a wait subject, till next year. A subject for all over the Bible. Yeah. 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 Next year. Next year, three chapters of the Bible. Yeah. All year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm sure you've seen maybe a trailer of the Sermon on the Mount. But yeah, starting next year, mm-hmm. we're going to be reading slowly yeah. the Sermon on the Mount. We'll talk about it more next week. We'll have our end of the year podcast. Well, mm-hmm. Steve on. Yeah. Yep. Steve, our friend and fearless CEO of the Bible Project. Yeah. Yeah. Do kind of a year end recap. We'll talk about Sermon on the Mount. But since we have your attention right now, mm-hmm. one way to engage with Sermon on the Mount is in the app. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. We're going to have this weekly playlist where we'll show you, we'll, we'll walk slowly through the Sermon on the Mount mm. and you can read it with us slowly, and we'll give you videos and just clips of the podcast Mm. and articles that'll help you kind of engage with that part of the Sermon on the Mount. And then, of course, just on our YouTube channel, we'll be releasing things uh, January 1. Yeah. Will be the release of the first of a 10-part series on the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Lots of content on top of that. And so uh, we're leaving the dragon behind and... I'm sure he'll sneak up. Yeah, he's never never far. Never far. Here outside of Eden. He's right. always, always lurking around. But so is the presence of the snake crusher. Mm. Yeah. Okay. He's a lot stronger. Thanks, John. I really enjoyed doing the series yeah, together. Thank you. And I'm really, really excited about uh, what's going to happen with the Sermon on the Mount. There's so much to explore and to learn and to be challenged by. So, yeah, 2024, here we come. Here we come. Today's episode was brought to you by our podcast team, producer Cooper Peltz, associate producer Lindsay Ponder, editors Tyler Bailey and Frank Garza. Tyler Bailey mixed this episode and Hannah Wu provided the annotations for the annotated podcast in our app. Bible Project is a crowdfunded nonprofit and we exist to experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. Everything that we make is free because of the generous support of thousands of people just like you. So thank you so much for being a part of this with us. Hi. This is Kimberly. I live in San Diego, California. Hi, this is Michael. I'm from Austin, Texas. I first heard the Bible Project from a friend mentioning good sources for better learning how to read and understand the Bible today. I use the Bible Project for understanding the theme and structure of each book of the Bible. My favorite thing about the Bible Project is the visual storytelling through animation. My favorite thing about Bible Project is how they emphasize the importance of even the smallest details and show how everything in the Bible points towards Jesus. We believe the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. We're a crowdfunded project by people like me. Find free videos, study notes, podcasts, classes, and more at at BibleProject.com.